Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. This podcast explores issues, various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the association with an opportunity to provide ongoing diversity content to our member institutions as well as the veterinary profession at large. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AABMC. I'm so excited about today's show. This is the first part of hopefully what will be a two-part series on wellness um, in veterinary medicine. And I am delighted to welcome Drs. Jennifer Brandt from Ohio State and Tracy Witt from Auburn University to come and talk about this topic and explore wellness in veterinary medicine. This show comes in in advance of an AAVMC summit on wellness that will be held uh, in about two weeks at Colorado State University. So this is hopefully will add to some of that content and broaden the discussion beyond just the academics. So why don't we jump right in? I really like to hear what both of you are doing at your respective institutions, the type of work that you do, and how it relates to this topic. So why don't we start with Jen first at Ohio State. Hi, Jen. Hi there. So what do you do at OSU, the OSU? Uh, It's almost easy to say what I don't do. Um, It's a lot, which is really exciting. I provide, as the Director of Individual and Organizational Development, I work with individual people in terms of coaching or offering counseling, but I also look at the impact of the system that they're in, and so collaborate with other veterinary mental health professionals around the country, as well as teaching and learning experts and career management experts and diversity and inclusion experts. So I have the opportunity to collaborate with a lot of people for the benefit of students, as well as faculty and staff in the profession. All right, wow, that that is a lot. So, and Tracy, what are you, what a lovely office you have. (laughs) I love it. Tracy, what are you doing at Auburn? So I'm an associate professor in the psychology department. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist, but primarily what I do is research. And my main area of research interest is suicidal behavior. But over the ever since I started at Auburn about six years ago, I've been doing more and more work on looking at risk factors for suicide in the veterinary profession and just general veterinary wellness issues. Okay. All right. So... Why don't we just dive right on in? So um, do either of you have a really general definition for what is wellness? We use that term a lot, but I don't know if people know really what it means. What is wellness? Who wants to take it? When we look at wellness, we look at optimal functioning in career and emotional health and intellectual health and creative health and social health. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a broad definition and isn't just limited to physical health. Okay. All right. Okay. So what does that mean for veterinary medicine and veterinary students? Let's start kind of our conversation there. What does that mean for veterinary students? It, you know, um, it's interesting. I had a, a student ask a great question in a class recently about, you know, you bring in these folks to tell us what to do to be well. And literally, if we lined up everything that we were supposed to do, we don't have time. <laughs> and I think it's an excellent point and probably one that we all struggle with. Um, so it, it's focusing. I tell people to focus in on on baby steps that we can do. Um, having a bigger 
picture, you know, so understanding that if I am having emotional health issues, that that likely is going to impact my intellectual or academic functioning or may impact my social functioning. I may start withdrawing from my peers. And so um, an issue that might arise in one of those domains can really have a ripple effect. So looking at uh, folks holistically and realizing that all of these domains we want to have some balance in, I also, though, I'm a big approach. I'm obsessed with sea turtles. Anybody who knows me knows I love turtles. And part of them I use as a symbol. They remind us to just take that one tiny baby step in the right direction. So we don't necessarily have to have mastery of health in all these domains. What we can have is a willingness to take a step in the right direction. And that might even be as simple as starting with hydration. You know, am I getting enough fluids in during the day? Am I eating at regular intervals? Um, do I have a social support system? Am I asking for help when I need to? Okay. All right. So, um, Tracy, how big of an issue is this? is wellness, I guess, and, and mental health more broadly um, in the veterinary profession such that it drew your interest as a research topic? Well, um, as I mentioned before, since I'm, I was primarily a suicide researcher, that's what first caught my attention. So at first I was kind of narrowly focused in on the suicide risk in the vet profession, which is a problem. And we, we are in the process of gathering more data on that and learning more about it. But fortunately, suicide is a pretty rare outcome overall. And so the more that I've gotten into it, I've realized that we need to think much bigger and not just focus on suicide. We need to help people who are suicidal and try to prevent it. There are many more people who will experience distress related to their work or, um, you know, more minor um, issues that still warrant attention. So, you know, some of my more recent work has looked at general distress in the veterinary profession, and um, many of you have probably seen our um, JAVMA paper on um, national rates of psychological distress in veterinarians. I've subsequently collected some more data um, that includes other veterinary professionals because they're often neglected when we focus just on veterinarians. We've got some um, some uh, preliminary data showing that vet techs, vet assistants, vet technologists have even higher levels of distress than veterinarians do. And more troubling um, is that among those who are distressed in those professions, they're substantially less likely to seek help compared to veterinarians. Wow, so this really is an issue that that is not just kind of at the um, uh, DVM, but really kind of all through, running all through the, the profession. Mm -hmm. So any ideas why? <laughs> well, that's what <laughs> I mean, we're all trying to figure of, out. <laughs> right. I know that there's lots of, you know, certainly there, there um, I mean, I work on lots of, of different kinds of research topics and, you know, one of them being gender and they're like, well, we have lots of hypotheses about why there are so many women in the profession. So I imagine mm -hmm. that there are lots of hypotheses about why um, the profession seems to be at greater risk than, than some others. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, what might be some of those hypotheses and, and why are they even on the list? <laughs> well, so in our research, when we've asked people, what do you find to be most distressing about the profession? Um, the long work hours, work overload, that by far is number one. Um, and just last week, I was at the University of Georgia and had the opportunity to meet with some folks at the vet school there. And they were talking about um, 
how you know the students and the residents are really overworked and so are the faculty and that um, it's really hard to change that culture of you know being working 80 100 hours a week and I think that alone leads to a lot of downstream outcomes especially bringing up gender um, as the profession becomes more and more um, female um, focused, you know, I think it's around 80% of new vets yeah. are female, which is a huge change. Um, things like working really long hours, that causes even more problems with work-family balance and, and other issues. So I think all of that con contributes to the, to the stress level. Um, and of course, this profession isn't the only one that has long hours. Um, sure. Well, I mean, you know, oftentimes the profession gets compared to dentistry um, and their work profile is dramatically different. My <laughs> dentist doesn't work on Fridays, I can tell you that. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of practices I know are, you know, kind of four day a week practices and they leave at five and, you know. Emergencies are rare. Yeah. You know, and so um, so it's a very really different work profile. But, you know, something that you said really kind of, um, intrigued me because we have all of these conversations also in the profession right now about the economic stressors um, and productivity mm -hmm. and um, of course productivity is going to be directly tied to the number of hours that you work and the number of clients that you see and all of those types of things and so it would seem that given the current discourse at least um, um, about practice that it would be incredibly hard to find that work-life balance. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of that and brought that up. So um, from our national survey, and this was a survey of about 12,000 veterinarians, we asked people about, you know, what do you find most stressful? And we had a number of options for them to select, but we also had a write-in option because we knew that we probably didn't include all of the possible stressors. And just recently, um, some of my colleagues in the psych department at University of Georgia did a qualitative analysis of those written responses and financial stressors really came across as a common theme, um, a common um, issue that people were finding stressful. And what, you know, the more that I've thought about wellness issues and veterinarians and trying to figure out, well, what's unique? What makes things particularly difficult in this profession? I think the small business model that most, um, most veterinarians work in, um, that's something that physicians don't really deal with in the same way because they're usually dealing with like HMOs, people with insurance. They're not having to run a business in the same way that a veterinarian is. And then veterinarians also have many of the same stressors as physicians when they're dealing with, you know, after hours emergencies and, and that kind of thing. So I think, um, you know, all of this is kind of tied together where you've got heavy student loan debt. Um, the income is usually not as high as, a, as an MD, and then you're trying to run this small business, compete with other people in the community, and it's all just very difficult and stressful. Sure. And that's before we even talk about just everyday life stuff. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, Jen, what are you seeing? Um, what are you and your colleagues seeing in terms of, of you know, what are students, I guess, upset or freaking out about or just you know what's really stressing them aside from you know vet school <laughs> um well i think first of all i think we live in a complicated world so i'm aware of even the stress that uh, the political season 
has caused and so you know world issues i always tell students if it was just veterinary school that would be stressful and yet their lives are occurring in a bigger system right which can be complicated and challenging so um probably in terms of the veterinary mental health professionals when we talk we see a lot of the same things very high achieving individuals um, this is often the dream that they have wanted uh, i joke about it from being from birth on but often identifying very early on that this is one, what they want to do. Um, then they're hearing, though, from folks who are out in the field that it's difficult, it's hard. Um, I've had some students now say they're talking to folks who are ready to retire, and the folks who are ready to retire are nervous because there may not be anybody in a position to buy their practice. So we're looking at you know generational stressors as well entering. Um, certainly the workload, um, student feedback about curriculum and how we're taught, and uh, they're wanting to be engaged learners and having more hands-on opportunities. And so a, a lot of, you know, there's not a, a simple solution or just a simple issue. I think it's a complex issue. I'd also like to say, though, as a positive trend, um, I've been so excited to see more and more students reaching out for help in a very proactive way. Uh, so they're not necessarily coming in in crisis. They're saying, you know, I think I'm actually doing okay, but I wanna make sure that I stay doing well. And what are all the things that I want to do? So a real receptivity to working collaboratively with people and reaching out for help. And I think that's been incredible. Um, so that's really um, important. And I kind of wanna um, us to kind of delve a little bit more into that. So what types of things I guess are um, schools doing and what can, I guess, individuals do to promote grit and resiliency and, and the development of, um, you know, the, the bounce back. <laughs> I'll talk again about micro, meso, and macro systems. You'll hear me talk about that a lot. So I think, you know, individual skills, individual coaching, uh, we can have an impact on a student, really even how we model um, so what are we teaching them about work-life life balance? If I brag to a student, hey, I worked 100 hours this week, I'm not modeling a healthy approach. Instead, I can model to them, you know, I have to say no to this today. I can talk with you tomorrow about it. So again, simple strategies. I also um, think many colleges, again, are bringing in expertise, expertise from teaching and learning experts and curriculum design. We have career management experts now um, who really can help students develop a resume and also talk with them once they're out in the field. Let's say where they were hired isn't a good fit. Now they have resources to come talk to about finding that good fit. So um, financial uh, expertise and people who can talk about how to manage finances. I think many colleges now have very comprehensive professional development curriculum. Um, I know Tracy mentioned that it's so tough. We, we graduate people who are very skilled in medicine, but oh yes, now you need to run a small business and you need to know how to hire people and mentor people and maybe even fire people and how do you deal with conflict in the workplace and so i think more of our curriculums are also setting up training in emotional intelligence and life skills and communication skills so that i think that increases the capacity for to cope with difficult situations tracy i see you nodding along um any comments on that what are you kind of seeing i mean i know that you're not in the college of veterinary medicine but but kind of what are you seeing more broadly 
Um, well, I mean, I, I was nodding because I was really excited to hear about all of the initiatives that Jennifer was talking about. But um, And a lot of this mirrors some of the conversations I had last week with faculty at the UGA vet school and, and some of the, the struggles with, you know, having a very high demand career, but also um, wanting to model good behavior or not good behavior, but healthy, health promoting behavior for students. Um, I think also something for us to all be thinking about is we focus a lot with wellness on how can we help the individual cope with this, you know, very stressful environment. But I think the degree to which we can think about modifying the work setting or environment to make it less stressful in the first place would be great. Um, it's hard, you know, I think I don't have all the answers for that, and I'm certainly not an expert in running a vet practice, but I think we should be thinking that way too, you know, um, going back to medicine, um, human medicine as an example, um, some of the rules that have been put in place regarding how many hours a resident should be working in a row, um, making those kinds of changes, I think, could be beneficial to students and practitioners. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you bring up this is this um, an interesting issue of this of, of that these both of you this environmental change and how do we how do we not just, you know, or maybe lessen the focus on here's how to continue to survive in a toxic environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, set a, and, and really kind of refocusing on let's make the environment not toxic. Right? Yeah. Um, and this is certainly something um, from a diversity lens that I think I spend a lot of time looking at with some of my work and thinking about um, the climate at an institution and whether or not that climate is really supportive of all student success, um, whether or not there are pockets of hostility towards certain students that really kind of burden them with additional kind of stress that make it difficult to perform in that, you know, that environment. So those are really some important things. So um, modeling, um, I guess, uh, self-care. <laughs> rather than good behavior and bad behavior, but modeling yes. that. So, mm -hmm. so basically, um, what you both are politely saying is no more stories about I went to school both ways uphill with one shoe and a three-wheeled wagon that had a hole in it, right? <laughs> right, and I think, um, I mean, I can speak to the culture and academia in general where there is this um, pull for people to kind of brag about how many hours they're working and um, view it as a badge of honor. But some of the research from the industrial organizational side of psychology suggests that when you actually track how many hours people are working, it's much less than what they say. And so um, maybe encouraging people to be more honest about how many hours they're working and not be afraid to share with students things like, you know, on the weekends, I, I try to take it easy or I'm not gonna respond to your email within the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, setting an example that way, setting boundaries because, if the people at the top aren't doing that, it's going to be really hard for the students and, and other employees to follow that lead because they won't, um, they will feel like they can't be successful unless they're taking that workaholic type approach. Sure, sure. And um, Jen, I imagine that helping helping students and professionals learn how to differentiate what is truly a crisis 
and what is not <laughs> um, is probably also something that could use a bit more attention. Now, certainly we're dealing with, you know, animal lives and, and their well-being as well. And this is what um, the profession is largely devoted to. But kind of um, when the animals aren't involved, <laughs> you know, how do we kind of model this um, differentiation of, okay, I need to drop everything and deal with X versus, you know what, that actually is not a pressing crisis or that crisis can kind of, we can stick a pin in it until tomorrow morning. I think, um, again, from a veterinary mental health professional view, I, I see a couple of layers. One of the things that we talk about is that I think it can be hard to feel satisfaction in life if your worth is defined as something outside of you. So if I'm only a good person because I have an A, and now I don't have an A, what does that mean for me? So I think from a veterinary mental health professional standpoint, we're doing a lot of emphasis on finding what intrinsically motivates you, you know, what, what values and ethics do you bring to the table and how do you fulfill that and live that um, mission as, as part of it. Um, uh, so I think that's uh, that's I think that's a big piece of it. And in addition, I think going back to to modeling and educating and demonstrating saying no um, skill sets. I think the other thing to understand is that what is stressful for me might be uh, not stressful for someone someone else. So there's there's no judgment of that. It's okay that I'm stressed out about something differently. Um, some of the the neuroscience would suggest that even if we just frame anxiety differently. So if I if I say I'm excited about something versus anxious about it, it can fundamentally alter how I respond to that situation. Um, the activity in the brain, whether I call it anxiety or excitement, is the same. You know, I might have adrenaline coursing through my system. I might be activating stress hormones. And yet my approach to it, um, my lens for which I view the situation is different. And I also think some of that does come a bit with time and experience. I know, you know, things now that I didn't know 30 years ago. And so what I find stressful today is very different than what I found stressful 30 years ago. Sure, sure. So, um, Tracy, you mentioned earlier about other professions also kind of having um, similar trends, and we we briefly mentioned the lighter apparent workload of, the, of dentistry, but there's similar kind of path and, and trends regarding um, risk related to suicide and suicide ideation. But what other kinds of professions of professions um, kind of share this? this unfortunate trend and um, you know what 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 is kind of happening more broadly and you know any comments that you have about that um, well I, unfortunately I can't speak I, I don't have a lot of expertise in general about wellness issues across numerous professions um, I do know that the preliminary or the data that we have suggests higher suicide rates in veterinarians even compared to other medical and health professionals who themselves have elevated rates compared to the general population um, but unfortunately I can't speak to you know, general stress levels okay no problems no problem so um Jen, one of the things that we also hear um, at a lot of conferences and, and uh, that we go to, is particularly with more senior professionals, are, 
oh, these kids now, these kids today. <laughs> and it is kind of the other part of that. I, I walked to school uphill both ways in the snow, right? But these wow. kids today, um, and I don't know if there's really an appreciation for um, that maybe there are differences um, mm -hmm. and that the expectations are different. Um, um, in addition to some of the neuroscience about brain development, and I, I just saw maybe a couple of months ago, an article talking about how um, adolescence biologically actually doesn't end until the late 20s, um, mm -hmm. where most of our graduates, that's right around the time, you know, that they're graduating, 26, 27. So any comments on that? Uh, so I guess several things come to mind, and I'll try to keep my, <laughs> my thoughts in order. Um, so I think, again, I I think we do live in a different world today. Um, I, I jokingly tell students that when I was in college, we had a typewriter. Um, I didn't have a cell phone. We didn't have answering machines. I didn't have a microphone or a microwave, sorry. Um, you know, if your paper was messed up, you had to rip out the whole page and start over. And so uh, the, I didn't have the same access to data. Uh, you know, we have the Dewey Decimal System and you pull out an index card and you load up a bunch of books uh, on a table. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, so I wasn't expected to be a content expert in 1000 hits on Google. You know, people knew I probably only had access to four books. So um, I think there's just a, a multitasking and a pace to life that while I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist expert to say how that's impacted, I believe that that has impacted our functioning in many ways. I also think there are generational trends. Um, and I think we need to be cautious about labeling them as better or worse. I think the trends are different. Um, so when I, you know, so we're really talking about the generation of millennials and um, it's a generation associated with really valuing feedback and wanting input you know how am i doing and being descriptive about that where i would say my generation it was kind of the mantra of no news is good news if it's not a problem you won't hear from me and uh so that's not a better or worse thing it's it's an opportunity mm -hmm. to engage differently and i think as educators we need to be aware about some of those differences again some of that relates to culture uh, and inclusion and how can we calibrate what we've done to meet the needs of what we have today. So if I if I could weigh yeah. in there too, um, I think those are great points. Um, if but I, I think uh, gender again plays an important role in this generational difference because it's kind of nested. The generational difference is nested within gender, where more the more senior um, veterinary professionals tend to be male and the more junior ones tend to be female. And you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, if you were a male veterinarian, odds are you might have somebody at home who's managing your household and your children. Whereas now, um, whether you're male or female, the, it's much more common to have dual professionals in a household. So it's not as possible to work these long hours and keep your life in order when you don't have somebody at home uh, keeping up with all of that. So. Um, I think that that makes it hard. Uh, I think that taking that perspective is important for the more senior members of the profession. And of course, that's, you know, that's a generality and that's not true for everybody, but. No, but I think it's a, a really important consideration. So, um, so 
for either of you, but I guess we will start with, with Jen. Um, so what does self-care and wellness look like during such a rigorous kind of academic program? Like what, I mean, what does that look like when you're, you know, you've got study groups Monday through Sunday, <laughs> you're in class from eight to five, and you get a lunch break of an hour, and then you might go hang around the hospital and then you right. fall into bed. So what does self-care really kind of, what should it look like? <laughs> what is the aspiration? <laughs> well, again, it will not look the same for everyone. Um, sure. There's kind of an analogy I use when I, I talk to groups and, and I say, let's say uh, an average person or a typical person might be trying to juggle 10 balls. What I find in high achieving people is we're juggling 20. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then we want to add a 21st and it's often, I'll see a person coming in who believes they're in crisis because this 21st ball fell and I'll talk about, you know, actually the 20 weren't ideal. And so <laughs> we really look at, could we take 10 off? And so some of it is um, really looking at what's absolutely essential right now and prioritizing what's kind of an ideal standard and what, what truly can wait. Because I think we sometimes have this sense of urgency when it really could wait. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think for many of us, it's not, only a, it, it's not only experimenting, but it's realizing that we may come up with a template that works most of the time in most situations for us. And we may realize where we need to add extra support. So for some, um, they'll know that if they really start to feeling, feeling under a crunch that they might need extra sleep. Another person might need to put a little more time in at the gym and have more physical exertion. Another person might need to talk to a counselor or a coach or a peer group. Um, the key is, I think, tuning in to all of those domains and having an awareness when there is perhaps um, like a malfunction in the system somewhere and then being very proactive in getting help versus waiting until someone's in crisis. Great, great. So um, uh, what are some, are there some specific programs that you all have done say at Ohio State to kind of help students learn how to take care of themselves? Again, although I think the student feedback would be, you've given us so many things, how do we pick? <laughs> um, I, I emphasize resilience, and so, and I like to break it down again into really simple steps. So, uh, are we drinking good, healthy water? And I tell them, <laughs> I don't mean to name a brand, but I don't mean like a, a sugar bolus of caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> Process stuff like I mean water. Um, are we eating, you know, a good blend of micro macronutrients at our meals, and are we eating at regular intervals? Um, for mental health, physical movement is essential. And so the first thing I may look at if somebody's saying I'm feeling depressed or anxious or stressed, you know, tell me about your movement patterns, and can we build in more movement during the day? Um, having a support system. So I might often ask people, you know, can you list just numerically who are your go-to people? And I'll often find people have one. And so what happens when that person's tired and needs a break? And so can we expand the system a little bit? Really looking at sleep patterns, um, using blackout blinds and eliminating and blue light exposure before bed. I let students know I have these really not attractive amber sunglasses that I wear in the evening to filter out any blue light. 
which inhibits melatonin production. Because the reality is most students are going to be on a blue light device, a phone, a computer, you know, prior to bed. Mm -hmm. This way of at least filtering out some of the blue light. Um, so really having good sleep techniques. So again, I'm not I'm not really looking at an overhaul of an entire system. I'm really looking at things that can be implemented for no money, almost no time. They really just require a bit of intentional effort and prioritization. All right. Yeah. So, um, Tracy, have you identified some risk factors? I mean, we talked about those hypotheses, but but are there are there things that that kind of go beyond just the self care to kind of keep us <laughs> on the straight and narrow? But when things kind of tip over into suicide ideation and into something more serious, mm -hmm. are there some things that folks kind of can look for in their students and colleagues um, to kind of maybe in the event that they need to do some type of intervention? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are pretty well established list of what, what are considered warning signs for suicide because there are so many things that are risk factors for suicide. Right. It could be like um, male gender is a risk factor for death by suicide, but just knowing that someone's male or female doesn't really help you. But what you want to be really concerned about is, of course, if someone's talking about suicide or saying that they'd be, um, that they think other people would be better off if they were gone. Um, it sounds obvious, but sometimes people feel really uncomfortable engaging in those conversations or they think, oh, I don't want to ask them about that because I don't want to egg them on or encourage them to do something. But in fact, if, if someone's expressing any thoughts like that, it's helpful to to um, you know, provide an open door where you're willing to communicate with them and, and tell them how much you want to keep them safe. And then try to refer to a professional if you can. Or um, there's a really great um, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. Um, that's available 24-7 and can help with risk assessment. Um, but things like uh, big change in sleep patterns, that's considered a warning sign, or if, if someone's mood seems particularly irritable or depressed compared to normal, or maybe they're engaging in riskier behaviors like driving erratically or starting to consume a lot more substances than usual. Those are all examples of things that would be concerning. And I'd also put um, social withdrawal in there. So not, um, reaching out to friends, family members anymore, that, that might mean that you should take the initiative to, to reach out to that person and express concern. Um, Jenna, I know that um, Ohio State has gone through some really tough um, conversations about these issues in the last year. And um, could you talk a little bit about how the college went about dealing with um, some of the challenges that you experienced in the last year, and how do you have those conversations and, and make it okay to have those conversations? Um, so, yeah, uh, we did have a student complete suicide last year, Dave Hilton, um, and obviously an enormous impact on our, on our community and his friends and his classmates. Um, I'll, I'll first say that one of the real gifts that we were given was provided by his mom and his parents who allowed us to talk openly about it um, because otherwise we would not have been um, really at liberty to share any information at all. 
and I think when you're operating in an information vacuum, that causes more alarm. And so we were able to have an, um, the um, his mom actually um, drafted a letter that we were able to distribute with the community. And in it, she talked about, um, you know, that, that, sh that she appreciated the need to ask for help um, and the availability to help. So she urged folks to do that. And then um, again, a profound impact on his roommates and classmates. And so the student body really was incredible in pulling together. Um, they held a candlelight vigil, but they really just made themselves available. So, you know, there were offers on Facebook and email to just say, if you just need someone to spend time with, come over to my house. And we don't even need to talk about anything. If you just want someone to sit with, we're here. And um, and then I think obviously it, it opened up broader conversations on um, talking about suicide prevention. And at our school, we actually have offered training every single year uh, for our students to go through on suicide prevention, the, the questions to ask, the signs to look for, opening up pathways for conversation. Um, so um, obviously it was a, a horrific loss and uh, one I still can't imagine a, a family having to go through. I, I also think through that experience, we really pulled together as a, as a community and it revealed the best of who we are. And I think, um, at least my experience as a counselor, was that far more people started coming forward indicating that they were in distress and needed help. Thank you, thank you for sharing a bit about that experience. I, I know that it was some, certainly something that a lot of folks in the profession were talking about. And I remember when the letter was distributed and, and um, how impactful it was and, and, and felt certainly well beyond the campus of uh, Ohio State. So um, thank you to, to the college, but also to the student's family. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about the upcoming summit? Yes. So, um, what are you? What are you crazy folks doing out there? I should not have used that word. There is the diversity director making complete, complete <laughs> hyperaggression there. Apologies. So, what's going on with the summit? First of all, we're so excited about the summit. For those who don't know about it, this is the fourth year that AAVMC has supported a health and wellness summit. And in some ways, what I love about the summit is it's modeling the practices that we want. So it isn't just based at one university. Ohio State hosted it twice. It was at the University of Tennessee. It's now at Colorado State University. Uh, it's bringing in a, a range of experts. So uh, veterinary mental health professionals have worked together uh, and from it, it's even sparked uh, veterinary mental health think tanks on how we can contribute to the profession. We're bringing in folks who are specialists in addiction or have had their own experience of addiction. We're bringing in folks to talk about resilience. Um, and it's an incredible way to build community and information and education. Um, and it's targeted specifically for folks in academia. So we have our deans, our associate deans, our administrators um, and mental health professionals coming together to identify what's working well and what we can do even better yet uh, to create a, a really well robust learning environment in the education system but also for the profession beyond graduation great great so uh tracy i know that you have a study that is i believe the study is still open that <laughs> has been hanging out with you a bit on do you want to mention that study a bit yeah so um 
um, in collaboration with Lisa and a couple of other folks, we're, we've partnered with the um, LGVMAs, the Lesbian and Gay Veterinary Medical Association, Broad Spectrum, which is an LGBTQ student organization, as well as the British, um, I hope I get, I think it's the yeah. British LGBT Veterinary Medical Association. So we're collecting data on workplace and school experiences of LGBTQ veterinary professionals. So veterinarians in training, vet techs, vet associates, vet technicians in training, and then all of those professionals out there in the workforce in the UK and in the US. Because we, we did get some preliminary data from a previous study that I conducted suggesting that a good number of LGBTQ veterinary professionals experience difficulties in the workplace related to their gender identity or sexual orientation. So we want to get more information about that. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm, I was delighted to be asked to, to be a partner on that study, and we have done some preliminary work on that as well a few years right. ago with a qualitative study where we found that amongst students, our LGBT students, the kind of first year, it's kind of everybody's like, okay, hey, we're new here. And ironically, their, their comfort in terms of their social and academic climate and their performance is at its best during the second year which historically has been thought of as the most ac academically difficult year, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the anxiety begins to um, increase as they go through their third year and, and is at its highest peak um, during their fourth year, in part because of the rotations, the clinical rotations, and this mm -hmm. idea of having to figure out how to perform themselves every two or four or six weeks. Um, and what does that mean, particularly for off-campus experiences, um, folks not associated with the institution? So um, this is definitely something that I think we'll be talking about at AAVMC's annual conference, but certainly I think that we'll probably revisit a later date on this show as well, since this is a special, special area of interest for me too. So any parting words for both of you? This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. So Tracy, any, anything else? Um, why don't you uh, give us that, that phone number again for the Lifeline? Great, and thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. So the Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They also have an online chat option if you're in crisis. If you just Google National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, you can find it there. Fantastic. And Jen, any yeah, parting words? Yeah, I think my theme is collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. I think we're at our best when we're accessing all the resources. So individually, that's what we teach students. And as a profession, it's what we want to make the message clear. You know, bring mental health professionals to the table when we're having wellness discussions. Engage our teaching and learning and pedagogy experts and curriculum design experts. Engage our career management folks. Because I think that's what truly will make the, the profession robust and successful. Great. Thank you. Thank you both for joining us on this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. We're delighted to, to sponsor this, this topic and uh, look forward to hearing more from both the research and um, the outcomes of the summit. And so thank you everyone for watching. And until next time, thank you and be sure to practice diversity and inclusion.